Does intervening from conception through early childhood help childhood outcomes? Opening the blood-brain barrier to improve Alzheimer's treatment. What's the best way to manage TMD? And finding new ways to stop atrial fibrillation. That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. And Happy New Year to you and to everybody who's listening. Happy New Year to you, Elizabeth. I believe this is going on our 20th year of recording. Isn't that the craziest thing? So I would like to turn to the BMJ and talk about TMD, temporomandibular disorders. The reason I want to do that is because we have never talked about this in 20 years of recording. I'm kind of astonished by that. And what these authors point out is that TMD is the second most common group of musculoskeletal chronic pain disorders after low back pain, which I had no notion of that. And they say that at any one time, chronic TMD pain persisting for more than three months affects six to 9% of adults globally, with women reporting a higher prevalence than men. So this is a meta-analysis. They looked at 153 trials that they decided to use, enrolling 8,700 plus plus participants, and 59 interventions or combinations of interventions. They come up with a metric that they call the risk difference, which is the minimally important difference in pain relief of one centimeter on a 10 centimeter visual analog scale. What they were able to discern from looking at all of this data was that there were some things that really seemed to help. Those included therapist-assisted jaw mobilization, manual trigger point therapy, and five interventions that were somewhat less effective, but more effective than placebo. And those were supervised postural exercise, supervised jaw exercise and stretching, supervised jaw exercising and stretching with manual trigger point therapy and usual care, such as home exercises, self-stretching and reassurance. They say that basically any of these more dramatic and permanent interventions really aren't very helpful. So the way to approach this is really with some of these strategies. When it talks about temporal mandibular disorders, there are 12 different subtypes. And you think that among those subtypes, there would be some that would be more responsive to invasive therapies or irreversible therapies like joint surgery or prostodontic or orthodontics, oral splints, injections. But in fact, in none of these subtypes was the more invasive therapy the preferred therapy. The more conservative therapy or the self-management, jaw exercises, cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation strategies were much more effective than the invasive irreversible strategies. And that's very nice to know. I thought one of the things disconcerting about this study was that they report the mean age among their participants was 35 years. Their median average pain score at baseline was 5.4 centimeters on a 10 centimeter visual analog scale. That's a really pretty significant amount of pain. And their average pain duration was 44 months. So significant pain over a long period of time at a very young age. This is concerning, I think. It is, Elizabeth. And, and as you mentioned, I didn't realize behind low back pain, it was one of the more common disorders. You did mention something that I should have made our listeners aware of. They looked at which of these therapies could actually relieve the pain. And the secondly is which improve function. In both of those circumstances, whether one's looking for pain relief or improvement in function, the more conservative therapies were the most effective. 
The editorialist points out, of course, and this is something that's pretty glaring also, these more comprehensive strategies for trying to help somebody manage their pain require training and they require supervision. And we have a shortage of those kinds of folks to deliver this kind of care. Not only that, but sometimes the public health care systems don't even fund some of these things. I hope that this information brings us to light so that we do use the most effective therapies and we actually increase the availability of them as well. Why don't we turn now to the New England Journal of Medicine, something I thought was really fascinating. Should we use ultrasound to open the blood-brain barrier with a monoclonal antibody for Alzheimer's? This is a study with just three individuals. These are all three individuals that had early onset Alzheimer's. They had mild cognitive dysfunction, but they, on MRI scanning, they had clear evidence of amyloidosis, these plaques in the brain. We know that there are antibodies to these plaques. These antibodies are usually given by an infusion, but that means they have to get from the blood into the brain. That's called the blood-brain barrier, and it oftentimes prevents most of these antibodies from getting in. So what these investigators did, they said, listen, we know that you can use ultrasound to briefly increase access across the blood-brain barrier. I wonder if we combine this with the antibodies, whether we could be more effective in removing the plaques. So they took these three individuals that had amyloidosis. And by the way, these plaques were on both sides of the brain. They localized just one side of the brain. They applied this ultrasound, and then they gave the antibodies. And then they followed the plaques over the course of the next 26 weeks with multiple imaging. And what they discovered was in the areas where the ultrasound was applied, and then the antibodies were given, there was this marked increase in resolution of the amyloid plaques as opposed to the other side of the brain where they didn't use ultrasound. So they're able to use the patient as their own control. And so there was a significant decrease in amyloid plaques when they combined ultrasound with antibodies. In fact, in animal studies, that technique increases the antibodies in the brain by about six to eight fold. Of course, this sounds like a very attractive idea, and we have heard and reported many times that depletion of the amyloid plaques doesn't necessarily translate into a clinical benefit. And in fact, Elizabeth, they measured neurocognitive function of these individuals, and there wasn't a significant change, but it's only three patients. It's one thing to decrease amyloid protein in the brain. It's another thing to say, gosh, does that actually reverse or halt the dementia? And that will be the next studies that are done. And of course, we've talked many times about these strategies for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, where they would initiate them much sooner in the course of the disease to see if early depletion would result in a better clinical outcome. Right. I mean, we're presuming that it will make the neurocognitive dysfunction less severe or it'll decrease the progression. It could be positive. It could be negative. You have to approach it in a randomized way. Let's move on then to Gemma. This is a look at a multi-domain intervention in pregnancy and early childhood, but also in preconception. And this is a multifaceted approach that includes health, nutrition, water, sanitation, and hygiene, so-called WASH, and psychosocial support interventions from the preconception period and during pregnancy and early childhood. And how does that impact child development? This randomized trial in low and middle-income neighborhoods in Delhi, India, enrolled 
13,000 plus participants, and they either got this preconception intervention or routine care for the primary outcome of preterm birth and childhood growth. Those participants who became pregnant were randomized into these pregnancy and early childhood interventions or routine care groups, and then they looked at neurodevelopmental assessments in a subsample of children at age 24 months. There were 509 who were in that arm that had preconception, pregnancy, and early childhood interventions. Sure enough, it was helpful to enroll these moms who intended to become pregnant to intervene during preconception, manage them pretty intensively, I have to say, during pregnancy and in the postpartum period for outcomes for these kids, suggesting that this is a strategy that could be helpful for all these kids who experience failure to thrive, which is a large number of kids worldwide. So when you say a large number, Elizabeth, the editorialist mentions that about 43% of children younger than five years old in low and middle income countries remain at risk of either poorly developing due to poverty and stunting. In sub-Saharan Africa, that number is 66%. So this multifaceted approach where they looked at nutrition, health, psychosocial well-being, and hygiene, both preconception, and that was about four months before conception, or during pregnancy and early childhood, or both ends up being a pretty remarkable study. We don't know which of those things, whether looking at nutrition, health, or hygiene was most effective, but the most effective way to apply it was to do it preconception. If you stop there, it didn't really help enough. You need to do it also in early pregnancy and early childhood. Yeah. So I'm really interested in this also from the perspective of here domestically, there's this whole notion of preconception health. Women really need to get themselves into optimal health and habits before they even become pregnant in order to have the best outcomes. This gets women basically on track to take care of themselves before the child's born. These mechanisms could be physiologic. It could be epigenetic. There's a lot of different ways where it can be beneficial. I just have to say one thing about the point you made about we're not sure which of these specific interventions were the ones that gave us the most bang for our buck. I'm a little troubled by that just because this strategy was so comprehensive that it's hard for me to imagine picking out individual things out of that and trying to assess them separately. I think that this comprehensive approach really is the thing that needs to be taken. You may be right. Again, we need to study that because we want to use the things that are most effective. What can we do to further enhance those? Finally, let's turn to nature medicine and another very high-tech study that's all yours. We've talked many times about atrial fibrillation. It's the most common cardiac arrhythmia associated with reduced quality of life and increased risk of stroke, heart failure, and death. Currently, the treatments are either pharmacologic or doing electrical cardioversion. The trouble with the current medication treatments is they have limited efficacy. The risk is increased in people that have a thick heart, blockage in one or more of the arteries, or heart failure. So we're looking for new medications that can be effective in stopping atrial fibrillation without increasing the risk. This is a new group of medications. It's a calcium-activated potassium channel blocker, and it's the first in its kind. And they took individuals that had new onset atrial fibrillation, that had it for less than a week, and this is a phase two trial where they try to see if it's effective, and if so, what the doses might be. 
So they took about 60 individuals. They randomized them to receive either three or five milligrams of this IV medication. And it goes, by the way, just by a number. It's called AP30663. We're going to call it the new medication. Or they give placebo. Over the next 90 minutes, about half the individuals that received the new medication converted from atrial fibrillation to a regular rhythm, and 0% of the individuals that received placebo. There were no ill side effects, but it's a fairly small study. From here on out, we'll be seeing this tested in a larger number of individuals. Probably a lot less onerous for the patient, too, than the cardioversion, I suspect. It is. I mean, if you can give an IV infusion and then wait, and by the way, the average time it took to convert them was about 40 to 45 minutes. So if you have nuanced atrial fibrillation, you can go in there and get this medication and do so safely, knowing that about 50% of the time it'll convert you into a regular rhythm. It'll save you from having cardioversion. I suspect we'll be reporting on this in the future when there are a larger number of patients. One of the questions I have, of course, is what's the durability of this? Because we know that there's a high rate of recurrence among people, even who have cardioversion. That's a great question. 90% of the individuals remained in sinus rhythm afterwards. On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.